Holy God, holy and merciful, teach us to look outside our gate. Help us to be responsive to the needs around us and forgive us when we do not see. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning is a parable, but it's a parable that draws on the tradition of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a form of prophecy talking about future events, and normally it seems in sort of a bizarre way. There's these fantastic worlds that are created. The word itself comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means an uncovering or an unveiling of some secret truth. Most often we translate the word as revelation. The tradition of apocalyptic literature in our scriptures comes from the book of Daniel to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Christian scriptures. And it's important to put our lessons in this genre because although apocalyptic literature takes place in some mysterious sort of psychedelic future, its message is always about the here and the now. Apocalyptic literature is used to criticize current events in sort of a veiled meaning by looking at a future time. The book of Daniel was a criticism of the political leaders of his time. The revelation of John is a criticism of the Roman Empire. Sort of a covert way of saying things that if you said openly you would get into trouble for saying Apocalyptic literature is about the future, but at the same time, it's about the now. And this is where we find our parable today, about the future, but also about now. This parable is also driven by a theme of reversal, this theme that Jesus teaches so often, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this reversal happens in the very beginning of our story. You see, we have two men. We have a rich man and we have a poor man. Now, society would tell us that the rich man is more important. The rich man is the one that we should know the name of, and the poor man is inconsequential. But what we have is the exact opposite. Our reversal starts at the beginning. The rich man has no name, but we know that the poor man's name is Lazarus. And this wasn't any ordinary rich man. The parable says that he wore purple every day. And this purple, again in the Greek, is porphyra. And this, this is the, the dye that comes from a sea snail that is so incredibly valuable, so rare, so hard to collect, that it was what the emperors wore. This is the royal purple this is something that's not used every day. And underneath this, he has fine linen from India and from Egypt. His garments aren't just wealthy. They are the wealthiest. And our scripture passage tells us that this isn't just what he wore for a certain occasion. This was his everyday clothing. In addition to that, he feasted sumptuously every day. Feasts that you and I may only have once a year or once a lifetime. He had every day fine wines, amazing foods. I can imagine the best chefs 
were in his employ. No, this man wasn't just wealthy. He was lavishly and ostentatiously wealthy. He was just plain filthy rich. And then we have the complete opposite. A man who wasn't just poor, a man who was beyond poor. Not only did he lack money, but he lacked a home. And his very body was impoverished through illness. And this illness made him unclean, and his uncleanliness was exacerbated by the dogs adding their own saliva to his open sores. This man wasn't just poor, he was poorest of the poor. These are not ordinary people in our story today. They're not people that we might come across in our everyday lives, but they're hyperbolic characters. They're more than reality. They're they're extreme caricatures of wealth and poverty. And what this tells us is that we are not meant to identify with one or the other of these characters. They're on such extremes so that it places the reader in the middle of the story, in the middle of the message. It says to us that we all have something to learn from this story. None of us can tune out the message. None of us can be completely like Lazarus so that we don't need to listen. None of us can be completely like the rich man so that we will end up in this terrible place. So you have these two men on opposite sides. They may not even know each other. Lazarus is aware of the wealthy man as he sits outside of his gate, but the wealthy man may not even know of Lazarus, the existence of Lazarus, but they're united in one event. The one event that we all face as they're united in death. And again, the reversal happens Lazarus, the poor man, his death is a blessing. The angels come and pick him up and take him to Abraham's bosom. And for the rich man, the man that we would expect to have a long description of his funeral of mourners, all we have is that he was died and buried. And he ends up in a place of torment. Our scene then shifts to Hades. Hades is, again, a particular trope in apocalyptic literature. It's neither here nor there. It's some place where people go to wait until the final judgment. This is not the end place. This is sort of just like a cosmic layover on the final destination. And we have a dialogue in between the rich man and Abraham. It's interesting to me that even at this point, the rich man doesn't acknowledge the presence of Lazarus. He speaks to the important person. He speaks to Abraham and and this man who's so accustomed to having anything he wants, to drinking the finest wines, just begs for Lazarus to come over and just dip his finger in water. And that would be enough. But Abraham says no. And he says, even if I wanted to, There's a chasm fixed between us. Just like in life, there was a gate fixed between the rich man and Lazarus in death. There is something immovable in between them. 
So the rich man gives up on this and he says, you know what, Abraham, just send Lazarus to my brothers. I'm worried that they're going to end up here. Tell them to change their ways. Abraham again says no. And the rich man doesn't give up. He says, you know what, if they saw somebody who was dead, if a ghost came to them, then they would believe. And Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if even somebody rises from the dead. Of course, you know, the early Christian community that would be listening to this, they might read themselves into that because they knew that somebody did rise from the dead. And a lot of people who had heard Moses and had heard the prophets didn't believe in Jesus, didn't hear that. And I think if we look at the early Christian community, the community that gave birth to this gospel, we can get to a deeper understanding of what this parable is trying to say to us. The early Christians, of course, they weren't even called Christians. They were called followers of the way, created a radical new way of being together. When they came together, the, the community was not hierarchical. It wasn't stratified like the rest of life was. When you came together to worship God, there were rich and there were poor. There were slaves, there were free, there were Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, and they were all coming together into one place. And that diversity is beautiful, but it doesn't mean that it's always easy to live in the middle of that. Sometimes it can be problematic. Paul addresses this in the letter to the Corinthians when he talks about the love feast that they had after communion. And some of the wealthy people were coming early and they were eating before the people who worked came. And they were getting drunk and they were eating all the fine things so that when the poor people came, there was nothing left. And Paul addresses that and says, this is wrong. This is not how we're supposed to live together. I think this is what's going on in this parable, is how do we relate to each other with all of the diversity that we have. There was also another strain of thought in early Christianity, this thought of Gnosticism that was present in all of the communities. And, and this Gnosticism said that the path is spiritual. The path is spiritual. The world, the physical, is evil. So we don't have to worry about the world. We have to focus on our inner spiritual lives. This is perhaps what the wealthy people thought that Paul was writing to. They didn't have to take care of the poor around them because they had to primarily take care of their own soul. The physical didn't matter. I can't help but think this train of thought is still present with us in Christianity. Many Christian leaders will get up and say that we don't need to take care of the poor. They need to take care of themselves. And this is exactly what this parable is speaking against. We have Moses. We have the prophets. Moses, who teaches us to live well with God ourselves and other people through obedience. And the prophets who demand that we seek justice and mercy and love. And this is the importance of Abraham's last words. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. 
The clear message is here is that person who rose from the dead, the God incarnate Jesus who rose from the dead, is the continuation of Moses and the prophets. Jesus doesn't offer something completely different where we disregard how we live with each other. Jesus is the completion. We can't deny Moses' call to live rightly or the prophets demand to live justly and love mercy. The biblical scholar Francois Beauvon writes, The reason Christ doesn't allow human beings access to God without their practicing obedience and love of neighbor any more than Moses and the prophets did. The rich man wanted his brothers convinced. But conviction is not just about knowledge or faith. It's about action. This passage is about how do we live as Christians This is why there's a reversal. This is why there is always reversals in the Gospels. It's to help us to think differently, to reconsider our own actions, our own things that we do. The status of the rich man wasn't reversed because of his wealth. It wasn't because he was rich, because of all the things that he was possessed. It was because he was blinded by his wealth. It's because he did not act justly and righteously with that wealth. Every day, an incredibly poor and suffering man sat outside of his gate. Not only did he not see to Lazarus' needs, but it appears that he didn't even notice the man who craved just the scraps from his table. This is why their situations in life are reversed in death. This is the action the parable is calling us to. Like the early church, we exist in communities with a great diversity of wealth. We here at Trinity are a community of a diversity of wealth. And I'm not just talking about wealth, about money. I'm talking about wealth of education, wealth of availability, of opportunity, And this disparity of our world demands that we act. We are obligated to the needs of those around us, and no one escapes obligation. And let me tell you, it's not about being obliged in the big things, the extraordinary things. Because if we looked on a big scale, and we looked at the two characters in our parable, you would have the rich man. And in his society, wealth was considered a blessing from God. So the rich man would be the one that everybody around him looked at and said, wow, God really loves him. He's special. He's the one that's blessed. And they would say the exact same thing about Lazarus. He's the one that's cursed by God because of his poverty, because of his sickness and his illness. And, and, and perhaps the rich man did everything society demanded of him. Maybe he tithed. Maybe he gave money to his synagogue, to the temple. He sacrificed Maybe he invited people to his feasts, but these people I bet were people like him. His position isn't reversed because of the large, extraordinary things, but because every day of his life, he ignored the needs of one man sitting outside of his gate. It's the everydayness of our lives that matter. 
Sometimes it's so easy for us to go and take care of the poor over there. Wherever that over there is, maybe it's an economically challenged area of our urban centers, maybe it's a third world country, but someplace removed from us. And while this can be good and holy work, Christ so often calls us to consider right where we are here and now, to something much more intimate, to something much more demanding. How, in the everydayness of our lives, do we care and love for those around us? How do we seek out those in need right here in our own community? How often do we look at the poverty within our own souls? How often are our eyes open to who is what? to who is right at our gate or are we blinded this is the message of the apocalyptic parable this is the message that Christ has for each and every one of us open your eyes look around see who is in need and act amen